0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, once again, verse 9, except this time we're actually in the context. Uh, it does say part 4. Um, technically, I guess it's part 5. Last week was a little bit of, a, of, of an interlude, however, from the interluded series. Um, but that's okay. It, it's, 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 we're moving on this week. How's that? Over the past several weeks, we've established that grace does, does it, it, it comes at no cost to us, right? It's not rooted in effort. It's not rooted in merit. It's not rooted in any form of debt. And this is essential to our understanding of grace and essential to us relating ourselves properly. To grace. Uh, two weeks ago, when we were together, we talked about uh, grace and what grace looked like after salvation, what grace looks like in the Christian life, and then last week we were answering that question: What? How do we reconcile grace with the day of judgment? How can there be a day of judgment when, indeed, everything that I live under is under grace, which has no merit, uh, uh, requires no merit, has no debt, uh, requires no effort of my own? Then how can there be reward and loss? What will the rewards be for if it is not for my moral efforts? What will the loss be for if it is not for my uh, uh, lack of moral effort or my moral deficiencies? And so we talked about the fact that it is faith, that, that pile of wood, hay, and stubble, that pile of gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and Double will be that which is not done in faith, gold, silver, and precious stones, that which is done in faith. And if faith is that that key, well, faith is the the thing that taps me into grace. And so it is still grace from beginning to end. So we learned that grace is freedom. I'm free from the weight of the cold demands of the law. I am free from the guilt and shame of my sin. That is grace. Now, two weeks ago, I want to remind you about what we, what we talked about there in those points before we move on this evening. Uh, we walked through Romans 12, and you recall the, the six points that we covered, that grace frees me to serve, grace frees me to forgive, grace frees me to submit, then into uh, uh, Romans 12 through 15, in fact. Uh, grace frees me to love, grace frees me from judgment, and grace frees me to edify. And that's what I preached Two weeks ago, recognizing the reality that grace is freedom and unshackled from demands. I am liberated to take my mind off of myself, off of trying to live up to some standard, off of trying to earn my way to God, off of the fear, off of the shame, off of the guilt. We even spoke about that this morning, that the fear, the shame and the guilt was the essence of that which reflected in Adam and Eve as Adam partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the reality of death. That the thing that Adam and Eve had not known, they knew good and evil. They knew good and evil because good and evil was tied to what God had told them. And what God told them is, ye shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for the day that ye thou eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. So they knew that. But what happened when they partook and their eyes were opened is they lost something, right? They fell into shame. They fell into fear. Well, these things do not coexist with grace. And in that they don't coexist with grace, this frees my spirit to look outward, to look at others, to serve others, not to judge others, to serve others. Now, today we finally move on in the text, and we're finishing Hebrews chapter 13, verses 9 through 14. I have used this label, Hebrews 13, verses 9 through 14, for the past four sermons, this being the fifth sermon, but we've only considered verse 9 formally, and that's because we got into this series on grace. Well, now we move past it, but, of course, we'll begin back in verse 9 for context, try to remind ourselves where we were uh, some four weeks ago. So the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9, Be not carried away with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Uh, of course, so I've taught this verse to death at this point, but it is so foundational for the teaching that Paul steps into next. So let's remind ourselves about what this is saying. First, the instruction. Don't be carried away with diverse and strange doctrines. This not meaning strange, like really, really weird off the mark doctrines that are, are way out there, but rather foreign. That word meaning foreign. Foreign to what is the question we ask next? What is the diverse and the foreign doctrine for which uh, we, we are, are not to be carried away with? Well, That's where the next phrase comes in, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. So what it is that is a foreign doctrine is a doctrine that is not in keeping with, in line with, in consistency with grace. With Paul instructing the listeners to be careful not to be carried away by teachings which are foreign to that doctrine. And of course, we've talked about that now. And this is contrasted with those who would seek to claim Christ, perhaps, perhaps not to claim Christ, but one way or another hold a loyalty to the cold, the harsh, the weighty expectations of the Old Testament law. Not that the law is bad or wrong or evil, just weak and incapable of producing anything of spiritual value under Grace And Paul continues to contrast grace in the law then as he continues in verse 10. So the Bible says in verse 10, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. So Paul continues with this idea of the law. He's giving a, 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 a metaphorical picture here of the law saying that there is an altar and those who are who serve the tabernacle, those who are dedicated to the law, those who are dedicated to the Old Testament system, they serve a tabernacle and and those being the priests have the right to eat at the altar of God. Not everyone in the Old Testament system had the right to eat at the altar of God. The priests have the right to eat at the altar of God. And yet when Paul is contrasting the heart being established with grace in verse 9, Uh, as opposed to being established with meats that have not profited them, who have been occupied therein, Paul says we have a different altar. There is an altar we have that those who are dedicated, whose hearts are dedicated or occupied uh, on the the principles of meats, have no right to eat upon. And again, this is not to work in us any sort of disdain for the Old Testament system or to those who hold to it per se. But there's no doubt here that Paul is speaking of Judaism, whether he's speaking of those who um, have rejected Christ or more likely, as we kind of realize that he's speaking to a believing audience here, more likely those who would desire to resubmit or reshackle these believers to the Old Testament system, to the expectations of the law. So we, we don't disdain Orthodox Judaism or those that hold to it, but we must nevertheless be crystal clear that the Old Testament system is not interchangeable nor is it directly compatible with grace. And Paul says that in no uncertain terms here. We have an altar whereupon they have no right to eat. Simply put. They do not, by virtue of the heritage, by virtue of the fact that, that we share a common origin, by virtue of the fact that, that, that Judeo-Christian values share a common origin, that does not mean that the Judeo part of Judeo-Christian has the right to eat at the altar that we eat off of. Because they have rejected Christ. Through Christ, we have an altar that they simply don't have that we have the right to eat at, that they do not. And that's the idea here when we talk of those who serve the tabernacle, those who serve through the law, which as we have seen is fundamentally incompatible with serving through grace. Grace is superior to works, superior to debt, superior to merit in every conceivable way. And grace through Jesus Christ is the only exclusive way to the Father. So Jesus made very clear In John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And of course, this doesn't mean that there isn't any sort of a connection between the law and grace. We've made that clear. We've explored that in these past weeks. But much to the contrary, Jesus is not the abolisher of the law. Jesus is the fulfiller of the law. The law was a shadow, a shadow of a greater reality that was to come. And that reality is Christ. The law cast a shadow of Christ, but when Christ came, that shadow was no longer necessary. Jesus said, as I just just quoted Matthew 5, 17, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Christ is the end of the law. The idea there meaning the purpose of the law, the fulfillment of the law. The law pointed to Christ. The law directed us to Christ. And as we submit to Christ In Christ, the law is fulfilled in us. So that we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Christ came to condemn sin in the flesh. Condemn sin in the flesh unto what end? What end? Well, unto the end that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, but not in us as we walk according to the law, but in us as we walk according to the Spirit. The irony of the legal system and those who seek to live up to the law is that the very thing they long to live up to, the righteousness which is in the law, Is absolutely fulfilled in us through Christ. So that as you stand here today, the law is perfectly fulfilled in you as you walk after the Spirit. So we eat at an altar that they long to eat at, but they have no right outside of Christ to eat at it. They could if they came to Christ, they could eat at that altar and be filled. But it is an altar inaccessible to those who serve the tabernacle because it's an altar of grace. And this is to be a reminder to us. Do you realize what you have, Christian? I hope this little mini-series that we've done as we've walked through grace and I've pushed you a little bit and brought you to uh, deeper implications of grace and I, I hope that it has been stimulating as it relates to doctrine, but I hope that it has also helped you Understand and appreciate just what you have through grace. Okay, back to the context. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and even the law itself prophesies of the fulfillment in so many ways. So Paul says in verse 11, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Okay, so as we would expect, Paul is referencing the Old Testament law here and, he, uh, and instructions directly related to the sin offering. There were any number of offerings that the priest would do. They had trespass offerings and sin offerings and meal offerings and such. But the sin offering is somewhat unique in that unlike the other offerings, the sin offering was taken outside of the camp to be burnt. And this was first established in Exodus chapter 29 where we read this, "...and thou shalt cause a bullock to be brought before the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the bullock, and thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord." by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And thou shalt take the blood of the bullock and put it upon the horns of the altar with thy finger and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar. And thou shalt take all the fat that covereth the inwards and the call that is above the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is upon them and burn them upon the altar. But the flesh of the bullock and his skin and his dung shalt thou burn with fire without the camp. It is a sin offering. So the bullock is brought into the tabernacle. They kill it before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle. They take the blood and they put it on the horns of the altar. They take the fat that covers the the organs, right? The call above the liver, the two kidneys and the fat upon them. And they burn those things and only those things upon the altar. Then they take the remainder of the flesh and they take the skin and they take the dung and they take it outside of the camp And they burn it without or outside of the camp. See, because the sin offering was never eaten, typically speaking, many of the offerings, what would happen? They would take the animal. They would kill the animal. They would sacrifice. They would burn certain parts. And then the rest of it would be for the high priest to eat. And they would eat certain parts. And that would be a means by which for them to eat. Or the offerer would eat it before the Lord, depending on the circumstance. But the sin offering was never eaten. The blood and the pertinence was burned on the altar, completely consumed. And the rest was burned without the camp, outside of the camp, completely consumed. And there are several times where this sin offering would happen. Leviticus 4 connects the sin offering to a sin of ignorance among the people. That if there was a sin that they were not, that they had been ignorant of, they would search out that sin. And when that sin was found, They would burn a bullock for that sin. So it was connected in Leviticus 4 to ignorance. In Leviticus 16, uh, the sin offering is connected to the Day of Atonement. And on that day, two animals were sacrificed. First, there was a bullock that was sacrificed for the sin of the priest. And then there was a goat that was sacrificed for the sins of the people, both of which would be taken outside of the camp and would be burned without the camp. And why did God institute this very unique expectation in the sin offering? Well, because the law is a shadow of something more, right? Because God instituted and designed the law specifically to point to Christ. And where would Christ be offered? He would be offered outside of the gate. He would be crucified outside of the gate. So let's keep this in his proper perspective. It's not that Jesus was offered outside of the gate because the sin offering was burned outside of the camp. Jesus had no power to decide where he was crucified. And yes, we understand that God is sovereign over all things. But rather, I present to you that I believe it was the other way around. That the author of history, our Lord and Savior, the creator of all that is, that he established the sin offering And he ordained it to be burned outside of the camp because the author of history knew that Jesus would be offered without the gate. And the law was instituted as a shadow, as a means by which to point to Christ. And so God, knowing that the lamb, which was slain before the foundation of the world, would be offered outside of the gate, ordained that the sin offering that his people would perform in the thousands of years leading up to Christ that was intended to point to Christ, that that sin offering would be burned outside of the camp in order to connect it to Christ when he came. God ordained that the sin sacrifice be offered without the camp because that sacrifice, as with the entire system, speaks of Christ. So verse 12 says this, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Jesus, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, for without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins, he too suffered outside of the gate. Because Jesus' offering was, judicially, a sin offering for the people. Okay, so, good, right? Jesus is our sin offering. Jesus fulfilled the law. We have received this gift. There doesn't need to be another offering for sin. There need not be these sacrificial uh, um, overtures anymore that are, are demanded in the law because Jesus has fulfilled the law, because Jesus has become those things for us. We've received this. Now it's time to understand what it means. Verses 13 and 14. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach, For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. So two weeks ago, we said grace is freedom. And we know that grace is a free gift, that grace operates apart from effort or merit or debt. But though grace comes at no cost, grace does bring us to a point of sacrifice it calls us to bear a reproach. We are called to follow Jesus without the camp, to follow him to the place of his sacrifice and to bear his reproach. Now, what is this reproach? Verse 14 says, we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. It is the reproach of one who seeks a city In another land. It is the reproach of one who rests in what has been done for him rather than what he can do for himself. And this kind of falls back upon that merit idea. And this is important. When we think of the reproach of Christ, we often think of the pagan world, the heathen world, the world of people who love their sin and who don't like the fact that they don't feel good when they're around us because we aren't, aren't exercising ourselves to the same degree of riot as they are, right? And because of that, because they're not exercising themselves, oh, because we are not exercising ourselves uh, to the same degree of wickedness, uh, they feel guilty, they don't like that, they don't like us, they impose, they project upon us their own shame and they are thus angry at us rather than being angry at their own sin. And that's what we often think of when we talk about bearing the reproach, that I have to go into a world that loves sin and I have to deal with the mocking and I have to deal with the, um, with the, the, the persecution and I have to deal uh, with the, the um, ostr- ostracization, uh, being, ostr- being ostracized. There we go. I have to deal with being rejected. But, you know, that's not the only reproach. And as a matter of fact, in this context, that's probably not the reproach that would have been more in the forefront of the listeners' minds. Yes, there is the reproach of a carnally wicked world that disdains the light that is in you. But there is also the reproach of the carnally moral world that disdains the liberty that is in you, by grace. And in that, Paul was writing to a group of Hebrews. Most likely, the greatest reproach that they would be enduring would be the reproach of the religious community out of which they had come. Not the reproach of the pagans, of the carnally wicked, but rather of the carnally moral those who are doing all of the moral things in the law, but who are doing it in the power of the flesh. And that was most likely the people that would have been, they would have been contending with. So among the pagans, the reproach that we receive is a reproach for holiness. That there is a difference between the light and the darkness, and that holiness is a reproach To the darkness, therefore, they reproach us. Among the religious, however, what is the reproach? What is the reproach that we bear as we follow Christ without the camp and we live in grace? Well, grace is that reproach, isn't it? To the the legalist, to one who is carnally moral, moral in their flesh, the reproach is grace. Grace. And we'll see this in a little bit. Paul will speak to this in, in another way here in a little bit. But both of these, whether we're talking about the carnally wicked or the carnally moral, both of them, they root themselves in the same outlook, the same conviction, that we are seeking a city, as Hebrews 11 says, whose builder and maker is God. We don't live for the carnal. We don't live for the temporal, either moral moral. Carnally moral or car- carnally wicked. We live for the spiritual. We live for the eternal. That, and, and, and in that, we have a testimony, a testimony of grace. The grace-filled believer has no continuing city here upon this earth. We aren't at home in the city of carnal sin. And we aren't at home in the city of carnal morality. We are at home in the city that is to come that's built on grace. We seek that city which is to come. A city built on the grace of God manifest in Christ's sacrifice. So we go with him outside of the city to bear his reproach. And that is not just the reproach of holiness. That is, in fact, the reproach of grace. And we don't think of it this way. We don't often think about the reproach of grace. And yet among the carnally moral, that reproach is very much there. And for this city, for this grace, we bear that reproach. The reproach of those who will not receive it or cannot understand it. And to this end, the doctrine of grace comes with a definite measure of responsibility. Grace asks of us no effort, no merit, And incurs for us no debt. But it does bring a measure of responsibility. A burden of sorts. A point of sacrifice. If grace is the foundation. If the song Amazing Grace, if as the song Amazing Grace so beautifully puts it, "'Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home." If that is true, then grace is and must be a true non-negotiable in the Christian life. And this may, and often does, come at a cost in the world. Not only among the carnally sinful, but even more so perhaps, as it relates to grace itself, among the carnally moral who will stand in judgment over your liberty through grace. And this is not a new thing. I mentioned Paul dealt with this as well. In fact, Paul's own testimony in Galatians chapters 1 and 2 speaks quite decidedly of this group of people, this carnally moral people, who would seek to impose upon those who live under grace their bondage. And I think it would be a true benefit walking through the whole testimony of Paul together in Galatians 1 and 2. And that particularly because Paul was deeply invested in the Jews' religion before he had his conversion to Christianity. And this is a bit of a longer passage, so bear with me as we read it, but I think it well encapsulates what Paul is attempting to reflect here. So we read, beginning in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, For ye have heard of my conversation in times past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. So Paul is speaking of his early days, those days before he was a Christian, those days when he was a Pharisee. Verse 14, And profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. So he was not just a Pharisee, but he was a good Pharisee. He would uh, uh, describe in Philippians as being a Pharisee of the Pharisees. One who sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one who was extremely zealous for his own religious system. He was very good at being carnally moral. Verse 15, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood; neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. So he spent some time in Arabia. Then he went back to Damascus, and we know that he spent several years there. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. Three years after he saved, he has gone into Arabia. He comes back to Damascus, Damascus, and then he goes to Jerusalem to see the apostle Peter. And abode with him 15 days, but other of the apostles saw I none save James the Lord's brother. And so James was there. He saw Peter. he saw none of the others. Uh, the church, if you recall, was in a bit of a um, conflict over Paul. Because he had been a persecutor of the, of the brethren. Verse 20. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. Afterward I came to the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed, and they glorified God and me. So he goes to these other regions, and he glorifies God, and God is glorified in his testimony, and the churches are excited that this man who once was a persecutor is now a preacher of the gospel. Uh, uh, going into chapter 2, verse 1. Then 14 years after, so we're, we're 14 years ahead of that now, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus, With me also. And if you recall, Titus was a man who had been saved in the Gentile regions and he was not circumcised. Unlike Timothy, who Paul had get circumcised for the nature of the ministry that he was going to have, Titus was someone who was not circumcised according to the law. Verse two, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel, which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them, which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in. Who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us unto bondage. Do you see what he is describing here? He's describing people who he describes as false brethren. Those who claim some connection to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what they had done is they had seen the, the opportunities, perhaps, or the popularity or, or whatever it might be of Christianity. Maybe they saw the philosophy of Christianity. Maybe they liked some of Jesus' teachings and they liked what we might say is some of the reforms that were found or some of the perspectives that were found in the law. But they were false brethren. And they came in. And they came in unawares. They came in privily. They came in and the people didn't realize that they were false brethren. But Paul identified them as false brethren because they did not hold to the doctrine of grace. They were carried about by diverse and strange doctrines and not the doctrine of grace. He said they came to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that is grace, in order that they might bring us back into bondage. That would be the law. Verse five, to whom? We gave place by subjection no not for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue in you. Paul says that he stood against them and he would give no place as they sought to reason as to why the law mattered, as they sought to reason uh, what why it was that they should continue in these traditions. Paul said no, no, no. You cannot both bind yourself to the system and live in grace. And grace is supreme and it must reign supreme. Verse 6. But of these who seemed to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me, but contrariwise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, and the gospel of the circumcision was, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me. Toward the Gentiles, and when James, Cephas, that would be Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go into the heathen and, and, and they unto the circumcision. So they recognized that Peter and um, James and John were gifted by God to go to the Jews. And that Paul had been uniquely gifted by God with a perspective by which he was called to the Gentiles. And so they extended him the right hand of fellowship. He was going to do things differently, but he was holding to grace. He was holding to the gospel. They had the same Lord, the same Lord that called them unto the circumcision, called him unto the uncircumcision. And so they extended this right hand of fellowship. Only, verse 10 says, they would that we should remember the poor, The same which I was also uh, forward to do. So he says, yeah, absolutely. I'm definitely still preaching that. Verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, and this is later, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them. Which were of the circumcision, and the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away in their dissimulation. That word, of course, meaning hypocrisy. So Paul says, Then there came a time where I was in Antioch, and Peter was fine eating with the Gentiles according to grace, something which would have been un- unallowable in the law, but was according to grace. Until James sent another contingent of Jewish believers and they came and they refused to sit with the Gentiles. And then Peter, in a a mistaken fervor to to interact with them, uh, separated himself from the Gentiles. And so powerful was Peter's testimony... That Barnabas too separated himself from the Gentiles. And they went and they ate with these Jews, these Jews who were submitting themselves to the law and thus were rejecting the Gentile believers in the name of keeping to the Old Testament law. Verse 14 But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, he got up and publicly rebuked Peter. And he said, if thou being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Okay, so we read this quite substantial testimony, but did you notice the things which we see here? Before God, grace cost Paul nothing. Paul did not have to work to have salvation. Paul did not have to, uh, there was no merit by which Paul stepped into his relationship with Christ. He owed no debt to Christ for redemption. But it did come with sacrifice, didn't it? He who was exceedingly zealous for the traditions of his fathers was compelled by grace to leave behind the moralistic traditions and all of the benefits that it it provided him in Jewish culture in order to follow the grace of Christ. But the sacrifice didn't end there. Fourteen years later, 17 if you want to count the three years in Arabia, 17 years later, he has to go to Jerusalem again and he has to stand up and he has to speak against another group of false brethren who are denying grace. And he has to put himself on the line. But the sacrifice doesn't end there. Later on, he's sitting in Antioch with Peter and Peter dissembles and separates himself from the Gentile believers in accordance with Jewish custom. And Paul has to get up and publicly rebuke the Apostle Peter before them all. And that took some sacrifice. Now, of course, Paul would go on to suffer for holiness sake as well. He would be stoned and he would be whipped and he would be imprisoned because uh, wicked unbelievers didn't like that Paul was threatening their Their um, system of immorality. But it wasn't just them, was it? City after city after city, we find that many of the people who sought to stone him, sought to kill him, so much so in certain places that he had to flee for his life, were who in the city? The Jews. Now, the city was not grumpy at Paul because he was a moralist. The Jews were moralists too, and the Jews had no problems in these cities. These cities got grumpy at Paul for the same reason the Jews did. Actually, they probably got grumpy at Paul because the Jews were grumpy. Why were the Jews grumpy? It wasn't because of what Paul taught about loving your neighbor as yourself. It's because of what Paul taught about grace. It was grace that made those Jews up in arms. All of these being examples of what it means that we we bear the reproach of Christ, not just the reproach of holiness, but also the reproach of grace. And may we do likewise. We know what grace is. We spent a lot of time defining what grace is. We know what living in grace looks like now. And may we, through this exhortation this evening, be determined that as you have learned of grace, as you know what grace is, as you understand your liberty in grace, as you understand where grace places us, that you would plant your flag in grace. That we, through this exhortation, would hold fast to this doctrine with all of our might, bearing whatever reproach grace might ask of us, both among the carnally sinful world, who that will be more of a holiness reproach, but even among the carnally moral world, who would seek to spy out our liberty and bring us back into bondage, that we may reflect the same conviction Paul did. We read today in Galatians 1 and 2 through to verse 16 of chapter 2, But I bring you back to a verse that we talked about last week as we close today. Just four verses after this, Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the idea of going without the camp and bearing his reproach. Let us live in the fullness of grace which Christ purchased for us. We have an altar, we eat upon an altar that those that do not have grace do not have the right to eat. Don't yield that lightly, Christian. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.